Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 540 with Atta Tarki. Atta has some excellent perspectives on recruiting and hiring, and we're going to hear from both sides, whether you are looking to hire some people or whether you are looking to get yourself hired, considering how you might strategize for some job acquisition, job hunting activities. So if you find yourself more in the latter half of the equation, I recommend you might uh, skip ahead a little bit if you're getting bored because you don't want to miss some of the things Atta has to share. They're so good. I haven't heard anybody else say them before, so I think you're going to love this one. So you'll learn one, the strongest predictor of job performance. Two, what makes an interview answer excellent versus terrible. And three, the most important factors that determine career fit. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F540. Now here's Atta's story. Atatarki is the author of the book Evidence-Based Recruiting and the CEO of ECA, a data-driven executive search firm helping private equity firms with their talent needs. Big thanks to Atta for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Atta. Atta, welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into a lot of your work, evidence-based recruiting, and I'm going to talk about kind of both sides of the recruiting table as the candidate and the interviewer. But first, tell us about painting murals. That sounds like a very different part of your brain that you're exercising in your off time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a father of three and a husband of one. <laughs> and I feel like it's fun for me to engage in my local community. So when, when I have some spare time, I go and help out with painting murals. Cool. But now any particular murals that uh, you're especially proud of or fond of? Well, I have to say there's one on Main Street in Santa Monica that has a particular uh, meaning to me. And it was my younger brother who passed away when he was 16, sadly. Hmm. And uh, we did a mural to honor him on a location called the Bubble Beach Laundry on Main Street in Santa Monica. And it's a uh, silhouette of my younger brother flexing his muscles on the beach. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a famous beach, right? For like uh, bodybuilders and stuff, right? Absolutely. And he's smiling there. And I've seen countless people standing in front of him and also flexing their muscles. That's and great. Taking pictures and posting it everywhere. So I feel 
it's his way of passing on that smile to others. So that that makes me feel warm and fuzzy every time I think about it. That is really beautiful, you know, in terms of leaving a ripple that's impacting a lot of folks and in a fun way. So yeah, I imagine there'll be some listeners. He was like, you know what? I've been there or I, <laughs> I'm about to go back there and make sure we get the photo. So thank you for sharing that. That's cool. Absolutely. So we're talking about evidence-based recruiting and, and I want to cover it kind of on both sides of the recruiting table. Maybe can you share with us What's perhaps the most surprising and fascinating discovery you've made about how organizations do hiring or should do hiring as you've done your research and put this together? Yeah, absolutely. And Pete, like you, I started my career in management consulting, and I started my own recruiting firm about 10 years ago. And the first thing I discovered when I came into consulting is that I wasn't alone in having discovered that it's really important to hire great people. Most companies talk about kind of like hiring and retaining great people is our priority or our employees are the true force behind our success. The second thing that I discovered and maybe the most surprising piece then was very few people actually mean those words. Okay. (laughs) These words were said by Frontier Communication and Sears and based on their Glassdoor reviews left, for these two companies, they were rated right the two worst companies to work for. Oh, we are naming names. <laughs> this is going to be a juicy one. Keep going. Yeah, well, I guess what was surprising for me is that so many people talk a big game about wanting to have the best employees and their people being the true differentiator, but very few companies and hiring managers who actually act that way. Yeah, I think that, uh, that rings true. And it's powerful. And yeah, I think it's easy to say those words. And in practice, it's pretty darn hard to systematize the practices and processes and frankly, sacrifices necessary to make that a reality. Absolutely. Well, so then let's dig into it then. So there's a gap there. And if folks want to be doing the best possible recruiting that they can be doing, what have you discovered are some of the key practices they need to be following? I've discovered that a lot of folks follow old industry norms and practices that they think are just practices that have developed over time and are tested and tried and true. And But in reality, very few of these practices have actually been tested or are true in terms of producing better results. Intriguing. Could you mention a practice that's not getting done for folks? Absolutely. So a lot of hiring managers, when they start writing a job description, they start with, I want X years of experience in doing the exactly same job. Okay. And there is recent research that shows that experience in a job is one of the very least predictive factors in terms of on-the-job success. It's not negatively correlated with on-the-job success, it's positively correlated, but its correlation is much lower than what most hiring managers believe it is. And having worked with a number of our clients, as well as also uh, looked at our internal data, we can see that most hiring managers over-index on past experience and how predictive it is going to be on the, for on-the-job success. Well, that's intriguing. I mean, that is certainly a common practice, you know, and often you're right, the first bullet point you'll see, you know, in a job description or a post for an open role. So what do tell are some of the most predictive indicators? It really comes down to 
what you're recruiting for. So I'll give you an analogy, which is 20 years ago, the the old saying in marketing used to be half of my spend is wasted. I just don't know which half. Yeah. And today it's almost unimaginable to deploy a large marketing budget without taking an analytical and data-driven approach to it. And recruiting is going down the same path. And when I talk to leading executives at companies like Amazon and Google, they're telling me at uh, recruiting is going down the same path as marketing did 20 years ago. Depending on what role you're trying to recruit for and what problem you're trying to solve for, you have to apply a data-driven approach to see what works and recruit for those skills that are most predictive of on the job success. So unfortunately, there is no one silver bullet that works for all roles. But there are a few general rules. If you like, I can share some of those rules with you. Well, yes, I'd like to hear the generals that are available. And then maybe just an example of, hey, for this kind of a role, this is the skill that is the thing. Absolutely. The first general rule is don't hire for quantity, hire for quality. It sounds a little bit cliche, but I feel like when most hiring managers say this, but then go back to saying like, okay, well, let's get this hire done so I can focus on putting out a few hires, fires right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And maybe this can be best illustrated by the work that I was doing in consulting. Um, so I had worked in management consulting for six years and working in consulting in Los Angeles, I work with a lot of media and entertainment companies. And a few years into my role, uh, something a little bit remarkable happened. I was going over to the Blockbuster store where I would spend my Sunday afternoons and walk through the aisles to figure out what movie I'm going to watch when I noticed that it's going out of business. Mm-hmm. And working in media and entertainment, it was pretty clear to me that one of the factors that had led to this Blockbuster store going out of business was this tiny company at the time called Netflix. Right. But that was a little bit confusing for a management consultant because from a strategy's perspective, that shouldn't have been able to happen. Netflix was a tiny company. That's right. Market share. Yeah. Pricing power. Economies of scale. (laughs) All of those things. And Blockbuster was a $6 billion company. And in theory, they had set giant barriers to entry for all these smaller companies to come in and kind of like destroy their kind of like business model, right? And why was it so? What did this tiny company have that this giant in the industry lacked? You could argue that it was a better business model or it was more innovative techniques or whatnot, right? But why do they have a better business model? Why do they have these better distribution models, et cetera? What did Netflix have that the $6 billion giant lacked? And I would argue that you can summarize it in one word, and that is talent. Mm -hmm. So if you want to build a very effective organization, it's no longer sufficient to set up these barriers to entry and hide behind them. You need to lead the change in your industry. And in order to do so, you need to focus on finding the best talent possible. You know, that really resonates. And one example that's leaping to mind for me is Gary Keller with the Keller Williams a Realty franchise. His book, The One Thing He Wrote with Jay Papazan, whom he had on the show, awesome book. I believe, I don't remember how long he took off from being the CEO. It might've been a year, but he said it was so important for him to hire 12 people or 13, in that ballpark, that he's like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do for the next year. (laughs) And just stopped being the CEO, handed over the day-to-day operation to someone else to go hire like 13, 14 people. It was all he was doing in a year. 
And well, the results speak for themselves in terms of just how phenomenally successful that organization has been. And it really underscores that notion of quality versus quantity. And it's not about, you know, checking the box and moving on to your next task. Yeah. And I would say that that is a phenomenal example over someone actually putting it to action. And what's more effective? Is it more effective to hire an average performer and spend a ton of time trying to mentor them and coach them and through the apprenticeship model, try to get them to be effective? Or is it more effective to obsess about finding the very best talent you can and then let them run with things and spending your time upfront and finding them and spending less time than training and coaching them? And I'd say these two ideas have kind of like people have battled with it over the years. These two ideas have been popularized by two different movies. One of them is Moneyball, where mm-hmm. Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, one of the poorest team in baseball, obsessed about uh, finding undervalued talent and building his team that way, and two years in a row made it to the finals. And the other movie is The Karate Kid, where Mr. Miyagi mm-hmm. took on a subpar performer and with his <laughs> kind of like magical coaching skills. Subpar performer. He's just a kid. <laughs> he was a kid he nothing about karate and within a few months turned into a superstar. That's so right. It's like, which approach do you think works better? Is it the money ball approach or is it the karate kid approach? And I don't, I don't see why we have to make it an either or because like, hey, get the best people and then resource them well, I think is ideal, you know, when possible. Okay, so let me tease you a little bit here. So you said, I don't know why it's an either or. I'll tell you why it's an either or. Okay. You only have 24 hours in a day. Sure. In terms of like how you allocate your time. Your Mm -hmm. time. And you could take a year off to go off and find 13 to 14 superstars. Or you could say, you know what? I'll manage to hire these 13 to 14 superstars. But during that year, I'm also going to spend 60 hours a week in meetings and trying to coach people and mentor people. You're not going to achieve the same results uh, if you try to spend those 60 hours a week trying to coach and mentor people and at the same time kind of like half-assing your recruiting efforts. Mm -hmm. If you want to really achieve exceptional results in recruiting, you have to allocate uh, a proportionate amount of your time and resources to finding the best people from the get-go. Yeah, that fits. That fits. So there's no shortcuts. You take the time, you take the effort, you're putting the resources in, and then what are you doing with that time, effort, resource? Absolutely. So... First thing you're doing is that you're defining what good looks like and what are we recruiting for? What are the skills we want? What are the traits we want? Um, And then you have to create a feedback loop. You have to understand, okay, how are we trying to measure these traits? And then you have to go back a few years later and check. And that's how you create an evidence-based approach um, and see if it worked or not. And if you want to have an impact on the effectiveness of your recruiting methods, you have to just start measuring and you have to start doing that today. Mm -hmm. Okay, certainly. So then it sounds like I don't have any quick secret tips and tricks that I can employ right away, but rather it's the long game of monitoring, measuring, and tweaking the system. I do have a few uh, uh, (laughs) tricks that I can share with you from personal experience. Please. So first of all, recruit more for skills and fit rather than just recruiting for experience. That's the first thing I've learned. Uh, So check what skills you need and also check for fit. The second trick I can teach you is to let 
employees interview you as much as you interview them and be brutally honest with them about who you are and who you're not and why some of your happiest employees are happy at the role, but also why you might not be the right fit for some other folks. A lot of employers uh, are so uh, overly eager, especially in these terms where we have a 50-year low in, in terms of unemployment rates to sell the position and sell their firm, that they're not quite forthcoming about the challenges in the role and that leads to mishires. Mm-hmm. Uh, people starting in the role who are not happy in the role and then end up leaving. So that is the second thing. The third thing is that I like to hire people who point fingers at themselves versus at others. You mean like blame? Blame others if things go wrong. Um, they they blame it on external factors as opposed to what Dave could have done to make the situation differently. I was uh, recruiting for a CEO role and I asked the candidate, um, tell me about a time when you failed. And he said, well, I started at this company, it was a family-owned company, and I was recruited by the founder, CEO. And after a year, I left the role because I was fi- hired by the fa- father, but then realized that Uh, the son was not on board with the initiatives that the father wanted to do. And since the son was not on board, I couldn't make the change and I decided to leave. Now you could take that same answer and someone else could have said, well, what I did wrong was that I didn't really invest the time to understand this upfront of who's the real decision maker. I didn't invest the time to build a relationship with the son upfront. Once I discovered that, I couldn't, I could have taken these different actions to convince the father or the son to, to do these things. But instead he just blamed it on the fact that the son didn't want to do it and I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Well, that is an excellent distinction, you know, because I think people will ask questions in the course of an interview and it's like, how do I judge if that story is good or not? Like, was I entertained by it? Did it keep my attention? Did it seem likable while telling it? It was like, no, here's something to look at sort of beneath the surface in terms of are we taking responsibility or sort of shifting blame elsewhere. And what I think is so powerful about that is one, that's just sort of a more pleasant, humble human being, you know, to interact and work with. And two, you know, that's a learner. That is someone who is actively reflecting on their experiences and thinking about how can I get better? And so they're kind of naturally growing. And they are some folks who are going to really take some ownership and drive things, and you can feel better about that. So I love that trick. Absolutely. You're touching upon a very important point. One of the best ways you can improve your hiring results is to follow a more structured approach to interviews. Most hiring managers follow unstructured interviews where they come in and they have a few questions in their mind, but they haven't really written out all the questions. And then they haven't really thought about what constitutes a good answer versus a bad answer. And what happens in those scenarios is that you end up liking someone or you end up like connecting with someone on a personal level. And regardless of what they say, you feel like, oh, that was a pretty good answer. Mm-hmm. And you're not really checking for the content of the answer. You're more checking for if you connected with the person or not. And that is not a great way of predicting on the job success. A much better way of predicting on the job success is where there is a right or a wrong answer. And you can grade the answers on a scale of, call it one to five, one to 10, whatever scale you want to use. And then at the end of it, you go back and try to kind of like give them a gut feeling on overall, I think this is how I would rate the candidate. But having had those objective answers up front and grading system up front keeps your emotions a little bit in check. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about interview questions, but I would imagine 
you've got some approaches beyond taking a look at a resume and a cover letter and conducting an interview to get some predictive insight on how a candidate might perform. Is that true? And what are those other ways? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of skills-based assessments. And a lot of the companies that use evidence-based hiring methods also use a skills-based assessment. So Amazon, Google, and a number of other companies give you an assessment that is similar to a task that you would perform, perform on the job and ask you to perform that task. Absolutely. That is exactly what I do. And um, it works wonders. <laughs> Go figure. You are good at doing the thing that I need you to do. And I know that not by conjecture based on your experience, but in fact, from having you know seen the fruit of your work and saying, yes, that is good. I would like more like that, please. It does work wonders. And it's not only important for very senior level roles, but one of the CEOs we worked with, he had gone through three executive assistants within a year. And he mm -hmm. called me up and said, Atta, I know you only hire senior level people, but I'm desperate here. I keep hiring these executive assistants and they don't work out for me. Can you help me hire them? And I sat down with him and said, like, okay, how do you assess them? He's like, well, I just have like a half an hour free flow conversation with them. And <laughs> I make him an offer. It's not that important. It's not that complicated. Oh, I was yeah. like, no. Let them, let them do something that you would uh, do. Okay, so here's, a, here's an assessment you could use for them. Give them this task and say, I'm going to fly to Hong Kong this weekend. I'm going to spend two days there. Um, and then I'm going to fly to South Africa. And then I'm going to come back. You have 10 minutes with me. What are the questions you would ask me? And they would write up the questions. And it was an enormous difference. He almost fell off his chair when he saw the difference of level of questions that he received from some folks. Some people were like, okay, are you flying economy or uh, business class? And it's like, of course I'm flying business class. That's not even a question or first class. But someone else is like, okay, uh, when was the last time you updated your passport? Have you checked how much time you have left on the passport? What would you like to do when you're in Hong Kong? Do I need to send over your golf clubs? Um, do you need uh, transportation to come pick you up? Uh, what are the hotel preferences? you have and so forth. And it was like, just seeing that difference between the level of their answers completely changed his mind about which of the candidates that he should hire. That is perfect. Thank you. Well, let's kind of uh, switch the channel a little bit and sort of step into the candidate's role. So if we want to use some evidence-based recruiting to evaluate which workplaces are great fits for us versus not so great fits, what do you recommend we do? Absolutely. I'd say it starts again with you asking yourself the right questions. So if you're a candidate, try to understand what makes me happy. And I would say that most candidates, the mistake they do is that they start with, what is the job I want to do? What do I want to become when I become an adult or when I grow old? Uh, I want to become a fireman. I want to be a police officer. I want to do this job. But in my experience, how you do the job is almost as important for your happiness as what you do as a profession. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, okay, where's the location of the job? What are the work hours? Uh, how are you interacting with your colleagues? Ask yourself, what are the jobs that I've been happy in before? How did I interact with my supervisor? Was this someone who stepped uh, kind of like by my desk five times a day and made him or herself available to me or kind of like tapped me on the shoulder and said, how are things going? Or is this someone who kind of like left me alone and checked in with me once a month? Um, is this... Uh, a very high performing environment where I feel like I got pushed to kind of like do my very best or was it a little bit more low key environment? 
etc. And asking yourself, who are the supervisors that I had a great relationship with versus not? And what what in the day-to-day activities of those roles that actually made me happy helps you to kind of like figure out uh, what questions you can ask about the role to see if you're going to be happy in those roles or not. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's excellent. And so, you know, you've sort of laid out a few, I guess you might call them continua in terms of, you know, low key versus intense high performance, checking in frequently versus infrequently. And could you maybe rattle off a few more that we might think about, uh, you know, where we fall to make sure we don't overlook something? Absolutely. So most people say like, okay, I when I ask them, what, what made you happy in your last uh, job or what you did, they go to kind of like the mission of the organization. They're like, okay, I really like the fact that this organization worked with topic X. It's like, okay, but what made you happy about working with that supervisor? What in their style made them happy? And they're like, okay, well, this person was fun. The question I would ask yourself, you, yourself as a candidate is, how did that demonstrate itself in the day-to-day activities or my interactions with this person? That the fact that it was a fun person, I'd say most people will not describe themselves as very boring people or mean people, mm-hmm. but how you define fun or nice might be different than someone else. And most companies will say, oh, we have a very fun company culture. Great. How does that demonstrate itself? What is something fun you guys did in the last month? And you might find out that what they think is fun is to go out and drink (laughs) at 2 a.m. And you might not like that at all. (laughs) Yeah, I always love it when... uh, (laughs) I never actually said this in college, but I was so tempted when I heard all of these companies recruiting and I said, oh, so tell me a little bit about your culture. They say, oh, it's work hard, play hard. And I was like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? And so I was always tempted to be like, oh, so, you know, play hard, like we're to have a couple of drinks after work or play hard, like we're doing cocaine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, totally. They play hard. Is that what you mean? I don't think it is. <laughs> and so, but these terms are, are quite ambiguous and that it's well worth it, kind of digging in a, another layer to get after what do we mean by that? Absolutely. What do you mean by that? How did that manifest itself in the job, uh, in the culture of the company? What are some of the activities that you could say are examples of that uh, trait in the culture? What are some activities of the people that you enjoyed working with? Kind of like try to think about that and try to distinguish between it. Another uh, jargon that I hear from candidates is I, I ask them, okay, who are some bosses you enjoyed working with? Who are some of the bosses you didn't enjoy working with? Say like, well, I don't like it when my boss micromanages me. And I'd say like, 90% 90% of candidates tell me that. It's mm-hmm. like, well, what do you mean by that? Because I know that some some folks, they do enjoy it when their boss kind of like provides them supervision and checks in with them frequently. Other people don't. And would you say that everyone who checks in with their kind of like um, direct reports are micromanagers or are they just being helpful? So understand the right cadence, how often, what types of tasks that they would provide you feedback on, how how often you got opportunities to kind of like take a first stab at things versus not, and kind of like, well, how do you define micromanaging so that you can find the right fit for yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great stuff there in terms of getting really clear on what do you want and what do you mean by that in terms of what do you want? Yeah, and one other thing is I, I would ask folks in the role who are currently performing that role is how do you split your time? between various activities. So if you come and work at my company, 
an excellent question to one of our project managers, like, okay, how much of your time do you spend speaking with candidates versus talking to clients versus thinking about what search strategies that are effective versus other activities, right? And that kind of like gives you a sense. If you're someone who doesn't get a lot of energy from talking to people, but our projects managers say, well, I probably spend about a good four hours a day talking to candidates. You're like, oh, wow, that sounds draining. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like... Setting a search strategy sounds really fun, but you're only spending an hour a day doing that. But I have to spend four hours a day talking to candidates and that's going to drain me. It's not just about kind of like a checklist of tasks and traits, but also how much of your time is going to those different types of tasks and traits that kind of like give you energy versus kind of like drain you from energy. Mm, Yes, I think that's excellent. And so let's say, all right, so we've got a really clear picture on what we want and we are looking at an opportunity that sure seems to be that. What are some of your top tips for just crushing it, you know, and and looking fantastic during the course of the recruiting process from networking conversations to resumes, to the interview, to work samples? Like how do you dazzle? Absolutely. Prepare, prepare, prepare. Um, Try to anticipate what are the questions that are going to come up or work sample tests or skills-based assessments, et cetera, that are going to come up in the interview. If it truly is a role that you definitely want, do your research, go online. There are all these resources like Glassdoor.com, et cetera. See if you know anyone who used to work there or works there now and ask them like, okay, what could I anticipate? I'd say 80% of the questions you can anticipate regardless of if you know someone there or not. And don't just kind of like, think about them, but write it out and then role play, ideally with someone else. Uh, You'd be surprised how much more refined you're going to be if you actually kind of like sound it out once or twice versus you just try to kind of like wing it. I'd say the biggest mistake we see from people who want their dream job is that they think they can wing it and then they come in and they're just babbling on (laughs) and then they blow their opportunity. But also then research, not just the company, but also the the role and the people you're talking to and understand a little bit about them mm-hmm. um, and try to connect with them on that, that personal level when you're going in there and say like, okay, well, Pete, I noticed that you used to work at Bain and Company. How do you feel like that prepared you for your current job? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, I could, <laughs> I could tell you the things I do with my engagement data. <laughs> I, I don't think are very common amongst podcasters, but uh, that's another conversation for the day. Okay. So I dig that. So prepare, 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 do those things. And then, so you've done some research on how star performing employees deliver just a wildly big multiple of value greater than say average performing employees. Can we hear a little bit about that research? Yeah, Absolutely. So this is also one of these things that you hear a lot about, but then people don't kind of like know what to do with it. So what I did is I looked at uh, the lifetime prize money one in a few different sports. Uh, so let's talk about the prize money won by tennis players and poker players. All right. Nice and public data. Absolutely. So if you look at 24,000 ATP players, now ATP players are phenomenal tennis players. They are the top ranked players in the world. And you look at the, lifetime prize money that is collected by these players, the top 10% of the players there collected 98% of the total prize money from these 24,000 players. Uh And poker, I found data on 450,000 poker players. And there again, it's a very large sample size. So we're not talking about a small sample bias with five poker players or 20 poker players in a small tournament, but 450,000 of them. 
And in this enormous data set, the top 10% of the players took home 85% of the lifetime prize money. So what that means in reality and in practice for you and your organization is that if you hire a top engineer, this person might not write 100 times more code than an average engineer. But the value of the code that they write might result in billions of people using Google every day as opposed to Alta Vista or some other search engine. Mm -hmm. Lycos, Hotbot, Ask Jeeves, America Online. (laughs) (laughs) All those search engines that were so famous once upon a day, but no one knows about them anymore. And when I was using this example in one of my seminars, someone raised their hand and said, excuse me, what is Alta Vista? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Putting this to practice, it's not just Google who's put this to practice, but let me give you one example of how this has applied in a team setting. Apple launched its uh, operating system, iOS 10, using 600 engineers in two years. And it's considered to be one of the better operating systems ever launched. Mm -hmm. Microsoft launched AltaVista using 10,000 engineers in six years. And then they later on had to retract AltaVista. Now, if you're building a team, which staffing model would you prefer? Would you rather have the 600 Apple engineers or the 10,000 Microsoft engineers? Yeah. And what's striking here is the multiplier can be huge. And I think it really does vary by role, you know, in terms of if there's some things that's sort of like, no, this is, you just sort of have to follow this process repeatedly to go from input to process to output. Okay. But there are other things like, hey, if you are generating patents or coming up with a killer marketing campaign or something, then the multiples become huge. And so there are many kind of situations where the way the market or the environment is set up, you know, it's kind of like a winner take most, you know, maybe 80-20 or, or even more concentrated. I would say 90-10. Oh, yeah. So the Apple employees, you know, I'm sure they're getting paid more, you know, than the AltaVista employees, but they're not getting paid, you know, <laughs> that 10, 20, 100 X multiple more. So I always find this interesting. It's like, and we've got many of the listeners in our audience that say you are that star performing employee who is just really delivering extraordinary amounts of value. And by golly, if you ask for a raise, it seems like you get a little something, but there's like budgets and da, da, da. it drives me bonkers. Like if you're delivering 10 times the value than the average employee, how can you get paid at least two or three or four times what the average employee is getting paid so that you receive the rewards of the value? Sure. And I'm sure that there are multiple approaches to this, but the approach that I have seen works best is to, first of all, define the value up front and agree upon that value with your supervisor and set those expectations up front before you kind of like go off and do all those work that work. Say so like, if I'm able to get 5 billion users start using our search engine <laughs> as opposed to kind of like 50,000 users, can I get a raise then? <laughs> and... When you do that, it becomes much easier to kind of like tie it to value and the results that you're driving for the business mm-hmm. and getting folks to upfront agree to that. Okay, if you, I do that and I really kick ass, can I get a commensurate pay raise? As opposed to kind of like saying you hire from a business's perspective, you hire 100 people to go out there and uh, go look for gold coins on the beach here in Santa Monica. 
one of these hundred people comes back and says, look, I found a gold coin. I should get 90% of that value. And you're like, well, I have to pay for all the 99 other people as well that I, I hired to do the job. And I can't give you 99% of the value of that one gold coin you found. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of like set the expectations up front and say like, look, I'm much better than everyone else at finding gold coins or whatever it is you do. If I find you X, will you share Y percent of that profit with me? And say, sure, go ahead and do it, mm-hmm. right? And I like that because um, I imagine many managers have just never been asked that <laughs> question before. It's like, it didn't occur to me that it was possible to achieve at that level. <laughs> but uh, now that you mention it, you know, yes, and hopefully you can get that kind of locked in. And I, and I imagine many of the, well, hey, Netflix does this, right? The top performing organizations just sort of go in expecting that you're going to generate way more than an average employee. And they go in compensating you like they expect it from the get-go. And then that creates all kinds of nice virtuous cycles there. Absolutely. So Netflix has a philosophy that they pay over market, but then they also expect over market mm-hmm. performance. Their rule is that in procedural roles, uh, a top performer is twice as effective as an average performer in creative jobs like a programmer or marketing director or whatnot. A top performer is 10 times more effective as an average performer. And therefore, mm-hmm. they might not pay 10 times as much for their top performers, but they definitely pay above market. Certainly, that'll do it. Wow, there's so many things I'd love to talk about. Well, you tell me, maybe in terms of just sort of burning issues in terms of absolutely candidates or employers need to start doing this or stop doing that. What's something you really want to make sure you get out there before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I would say the most consequential mistake people do when they are trying to hire superstars and they've kind of like already set their mind on the fact that, okay, it's really important for me to hire a superstar is that then they overdo it a little bit. And they say like, okay, who are all the superstars that I've ever worked with? Okay. Pete is a superstar and Janice, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these people were superstars and what made them superstars? Well, Pete is a great strategic thinker. Janice is a great communicator. And this person has really good uh, people skills. And then they say, Okay, well, I need someone who has all those things. (laughs) And they end up with kind of like a job description with 17 different traits. And I I call it that they end up recruiting for Frankenstein as opposed to kind of like a um, superstar instead. And it's the Frankenstein method of recruiting does not work. The Moneyball method of recruiting works. And the Moneyball method of recruiting is to reduce the number of factors that you deem are important to predict on the job success, not increase them. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Absolutely. Uh, my favorite quote is, be the change. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I find myself referring a lot to Jason Dana's study. He works at Yale and he did a study that is called the dilution effect. Um, and in this study, um, He essentially showed that if you give people more information about candidates, they make worse decisions about their on-the-job success rather than if you focus on just the most important decision. So keep that in mind. Don't replace quality with quantity when you're trying to predict on-the-job success. You know, I really like that. And I think part of the reason why your picture resonated with me so much is because I'm doing some of this. And when I'm hiring now, I'm all about show me what you can do with the evidence so that I will, in fact, not even look at resumes <laughs> until pretty late in the process. It's like, 
you've already demonstrated a lot of key things. Now I'm going to look at your resumes because I just found them heartbreaking. It's like, oh my gosh, you've got all these incredible writing bylines. You must be an amazing writer. But then when I kind of got to put it to the test, it's like, hmm, actually not so much. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you had a lot of help from an editor at each of those places where you have cool bylines. Or maybe they just spent, uh, I don't know, 10 times the amount of hours in creating those pieces as compared to my assessments. But anyway, yeah, I buy that because I might be deceived because I think, oh, well, it must be pretty good because of this. Mm. And we're like, well, that's actually not uh, that predictive after all. So, hmm. Absolutely. And keep also in mind that it's almost like uh, a little bit of kind of like chemistry there where a person might have been very good and effective in another setting. And let's say they worked at a magazine where they had like three different set of editors that gave them like detailed feedback and revisions. And they had a language editor that helped them with the language. And this person was just really good at coming up with like brilliant ideas and statistics. And the other people were like, okay, as a team, we can make this happen. But in your setting, you might need them to be a single contributor Mm -hmm. and it might not work as well for you in your setting. So giving them the skills-based assessment will show you, okay, this is what I need for this job? And do I think that this person is going to be effective in our organization or not? Mm, Lovely. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Fiction book, 1984, George Orwell, nonfiction book, I would say Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. And how about a favorite tool? Okay. So in terms of favorite tools, um, favorite frameworks that have been like very helpful for me is the concept of ABC tasks. The way I think about them is A tasks are the must do's that I will definitely not miss doing. B tasks are things that are important, but I'm not going to get to them today or this week, but I know, and I promise myself that I'm going to get to them later. And C tasks are like, if I get to do it, great. If not, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I have it. Touch everything once. Um, I try to drive uh, tasks to completion when I start it. So if I start an email, I try to kind of like just finish it. If I start kind of like writing on an article or a chapter of the book or a section of the book, I try to kind of like really kind of like drive it to completion so that I don't have to kind of like start and stop multiple times. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your clients or audience? Hire well, manage little. Mm Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Go to our website, eca-partners.com, and then click on my name. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Absolutely. So if you do really believe that quality hires make a big difference for your business, quantify how much more valuable they are for your business, your division, or in your role. Don't just kind of like say it, but quantify it and see if you're willing to act upon it. If a quality hire is that much more valuable to your organization, are you willing to invest in finding those hires or not? If not, it probably is an indicator that you don't really believe in your numbers and redo the numbers until you're willing to act upon them. Mm-hmm. Atta, this has been a thrill. Thank you for sharing the good word and good luck in all the ways you're helping folks hire and get hired. Absolutely, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. I think Atta shared so much good stuff here that gets you rethinking. If you're doing the hiring or trying to get hired, so many good ideas and food for thought inspiration here. I recommend chewing on this one and revisiting it. So I think the one that I liked the most was when he shared the example associated with hiring an executive administrative assistant there and how rather than just asking sort of a a series of standard questions, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? He asked a question 
that gave a glimpse into that person's ability to anticipate, namely, hey, let's say I'm going on this trip. What are the kinds of questions you'd need to ask me to make sure we book all the things well? I think that is the name of the game in terms of doing great hiring. Not just tell me what you can do, but show me what you can do on the spot. In strategy consulting, we did the consulting case interview. In the realm of executive administrative assistance, we heard, let's hear some anticipation. I think that's great if you're on your hiring side to think through, how can I get a little bit of a quick sneak peek preview, high fidelity simulation of the kinds of thinking I'm going to need from them all the time. And if you are in the being recruited side of things to think through, what would they most love to hear? And how can I demonstrate that to them? We heard from a previous guest about the briefcase technique. That was Alston Belsick, episode 392, in which you actually show, hey, here's what I could do for you. And I think that just makes a world of difference in terms of differentiating yourself. So great stuff from Atta. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep540. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Tom Rath. You may have remembered him from StrengthsFinder fame and the Gallup organization. Well, he's back talking about how the work you do makes a contribution, how you can zero in on the type of contribution that's the most meaningful, engaging, and fun for you. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.